Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. If you haven't already checked out Publicer Jane Doe, make sure to listen to that episode before we move on to this episode. But if you have, here comes part two. Last time on What Happened To. The Publicer Distillery was big in Philadelphia. They had two plants, one in Ben Salem. And by the late 80s, it kind of fell apart, became an abandoned property. It was a party spot. Kids would go back there and just like anywhere where there's wooded areas, they would play around, they would drink, they would smoke and that sort of thing. My first name is Chris, C-H-R-I-S. My last name is McMullen and I'm a detective with the Ben Salem Police. One day in January of 1988, underground bunkers or pump houses that we refer to them as coming out of the ground wheels and valves and pipes a couple went back there walking their dog one of them looked down one of those concrete vats they see what looks like a mannequin laying on a massive pipe it's a body she was a a young girl 15 to 21 like mid-teens to early 20s white female Petite, 120 pounds, long brown hair. Another interesting thing about her is she was pregnant. All the leads had dried up and her bones were placed into storage with the label Jane Doe Publicer. Chris was tracking down all the leads he could, going back to the 80s to see what might have been missed. There was a girl that had disappeared in October of 84. One of those cases was of Jeanette Tamby. She was 18 years old at the time. Chris saw the timeline matched up. By the time I came along, her mother and father were deceased. She had one sibling, a brother, agreed to give me a DNA sample, so I took some buckle swabs. I was pretty confident that I was going to get a hit between him and uh, publicer Jane Doe. I took the call and they told me, they said, so your sample of uh, got a mitochondrial match. And right away I'm thinking, okay, that's Jeanette Tamby is the public, is public or Jane Doe. And I'm like, yeah, a a Jane Doe that was found in Buena, New Jersey in 1986. I'm like, what? You know, how the hell, wait. When I was a kid, my grandmother would tell us the story of the Jersey Devil. How he lurked behind the Pine Barrens, unwanted by his family, always in search of someone or something.
I remember the drive to our house so well, the long dark roads edged by the pine trees. Occasionally, a pair of headlights would come towards us heading in the other direction. But when we were soaked in the darkness again, I'd look to see if I could spot a shadowy figure behind those tree trunks to see if I could find the Jersey Devil. Buena Vista, New Jersey is a smaller town, not far from the shore. It's 42 miles of pine trees, playgrounds, and farmlands. They have a mayor and a town council. There's an Easter egg hunt every year in a local park, and Santa visits on a fire truck during the holidays. It's a few miles from the Atlantic City Expressway, about a 45-minute drive to Philadelphia. The homes are spaced out on huge plots, allowing for privacy. Sometimes fields stretch between neighbors. The houses, though, are tucked away from view, just behind the trees. On August 8th, 1986, a couple drove from Philadelphia to check on a home they were building. It was in a section of the town called Newtonville. It was a Friday. They pulled up to the driveway and walked around. And in the tall summer baked grass, they saw the shadowy something. They got closer and what they saw is as gruesome as only horror films can conjure. The mangled body of a woman, wrist shackled, was right there in their blood-soaked yard. Her face was unrecognizable. It was almost as if someone tried to erase her identity, and they succeeded for a few decades. Brief descriptions of the body found were printed in newspapers, flashed on the radio and television. She was estimated to be between 16 and 26 years old, weighing 110 to 120 pounds. She was somewhere between 5'4 and 5'7, according to the reports. She had on a blue long sleeve pullover sweater, blue jeans, size 8 gray high tops, with the brand name Dancer Size. Another odd detail, though, were her dental records orthodontic brackets indicating prior braces or retainers. It is believed the dentist who installed brackets learned in a school from the Midwest, and it went on to describe decay and root canal treatments. But the way she died, it's even hard for the detectives to talk about. Particularly horrible. Clearly, the evidence of the, of the murder indicates some suffering took place. Detective Sergeant Joseph Etri and Detective Taylor Bonner are with the New Jersey State Police's newly formed cold case unit. When her body was recovered, there was evidence that she had been stabbed uh, multiple times, asphyxiated, and um, had evidence of an assault with, with injuries to her skull. She was fully clothed. She was bound with pipe hangers behind her back. And also, she had caustic acid poured on her body. A lot of acid. The details of the autopsy, it's something out of a horror film. In 1986, investigators would often use dental records and fingerprints to ID someone. Forensic DNA was in its infancy. 
matching a DNA profile or getting familial DNA wouldn't happen for another decade. It's kind of why someone would put a body, uh, this you know, a murder victim in those types of areas. It, it just, the less tie the person has to the area, the harder it is to decipher, especially if they remain unidentified. And, you know, we know that um, the acid had had an impact on her death. That is part of her, of, of the murder itself. But it also has an element of destruction of evidence. So it ends up being a particularly difficult case to investigate when you don't know who the victim is. It doesn't appear that they're actually tied to the area where they're found. And there's, you know, significant efforts to destroy the evidence made. Years went by. Her body was buried in 1996 in an unmarked grave in Memora Township, New Jersey. But samples of DNA were preserved. In 2007, the New Jersey State Police entered the DNA from the skull of the body found into CODIS, that national database, and they waited. Last week, we told you about this woman. Her decomposed remains were found more than a year ago near an abandoned factory. Who she is remains a mystery. Now a woman who saw that story has come forward with a possible clue to the girl's identity, a missing person who matches the dead woman's description. For now, we'll just call that missing person Jeanette. I've been trying to find her. Joanne Fox hasn't seen her former neighbor Jeanette since 1984. The young woman was 21 then. Ms. Fox says Jeanette was alone with no family that cared about her. WCAU's Crime Stoppers profiled the case of Jeanette Tamby in 1989. Jeanette was last seen here five years ago. Her father had just died of a heart attack, and Jeanette left, possibly to search for her former boyfriend. Jeanette grew up in Ben Salem, Bucks County, in Pennsylvania. Ben Salem detective Chris McMullen got a call from that neighbor, Joanne, who lived in the same complex, the Creekside Apartments on Knights Road. He was focused on the case of publicer Jane Doe. Joanne lived in the same apartment complex as Jeanette, and I would almost describe her as like a surrogate mother to Jeanette. She used to say that Jeanette had a pretty rough home life, didn't get along well with her parents. And um, But after the um, publicer Jane Doe body was found, and with some media coverage on that, Joanne thought that, you know, it may be Jeanette Hamby, and she had brought that to the attention of uh, the police. I had gone to see Joanne. She lived down in Northeast Philadelphia, and I, I'd, I'd visited with her a couple times to get information from her. In the meantime, McMullen searches for Jeanette's brother and found him outside of Scranton, Pennsylvania. I went up and saw him in the fall of 2009. I showed him the photographs of the clothing and some of the jewelry that was found with public or Jane Doe. None of it looked familiar to him, but he also said that, in all honesty, he probably wouldn't know or remember anyway. He, he was pretty candid and said that back in those days, he, he had just gotten out of the military and he, was, um, he did a lot of drinking and partying. And when Jeanette disappeared, they all just figured out she ran off with her boyfriend or something. She'll be back. He agreed to give me a DNA sample. So I took some buckle swabs and then sent them down to uh, the Center for Human Identification, and they extracted his DNA and put it into CODIS. I was pretty confident that I was going to get a hit between him and uh, public or Jane Doe. I got a phone call. It was it was kind of funny. I, I got into work, and I had mail on my desk, and I opened up the letter, and it was from the uh, University of North Texas telling me that there had been a so, an association made with Tamby's DNA. And at the same time, it was like, just very ironic. The phone was ringing, and it was them. And uh, I took the call, and they told me, they said, so you, your sample of uh, got a mitochondrial match. 
and right away I'm thinking, okay, that's Jeanette Tamby is the public is public or Jane Doe, and I'm they're like, yeah, a a Jane Doe that was found in Buena, New Jersey in 1986. I'm like, what? You know, what? how the hell? Wait. <laughs> Around the same time, the New Jersey State Police are getting a similar call. Here's Detective Sergeant Joe Tree again. This was prior to either of our time working on this case. So from there, we would we really would jump in with Chris and unit members at that time did. But the medical examiner who had to sign off on a formal identification needed more. The medical examiner at Atlanta County would not sign a death certificate naming her as Jeanette Tamby without nuclear DNA, which is provided from parents. So it was my understanding that you know her parents were deceased and again had been cremated. So even if I'd had the money to get an exhumation, I, I wasn't wasn't a possibility. So I had spoken to the original investigator that had investigated Jeanette Tamby's disappearance. And uh, he told me, he said, well, you know, about a year after she disappeared, I took a couple vials of her mother's blood just in case something ever came up. You know, that was in 84, 85, and it's now 2009. And I'm like, we weren't even in the same building. You know, we had moved to a new building by then. And I, I said, you know, uh, okay, I, I kind of laughed. I'm like, uh, you know, uh, let me go go down to talk to the evidence custodian and see what we got. And he actually had two vials of blood in the freezer with the name Joy Tamby. Working cold cases is tough because, you know, they didn't have computers back in those days the way we have now, and you get case files and things get lost. And so I was shocked. I'm like, I ought to play the lottery with odds like that. The medical examiner then pulled a more accurate DNA profile sample to compare to the blood. So we sent, I gave the blood to the New Jersey State Police Lab. I took it right up that day. And shortly thereafter, we got a, a nuclear match. And in 2011, New Jersey State Police finally put a name to the body. It was proven that their Jane Doe was indeed Jeanette Tamby. working on that case, he helped us to identify that Jeanette was actually the person we found, not the person he was looking into. At that point, you want to get the background, the victimology, understanding of the victim. And that's what ended up occurring. And Detective McMullen was obviously a big help with that because Jeanette was missing from that jurisdiction. And so diving in on, on the circumstances with which the person went missing is, and, and really doing your best to retrace their steps. That, that's kind of where the investigation goes from there. Detective Taylor Bonner with the New Jersey State Police. The way the brother explains her, she was kind of always on her own, always kind of homeless, um, always begging for money. I mean, she's gone for two years and her brother didn't even seem like it was that kind of like, okay, she, she's going somewhere. And that was kind of it. Jeanette would be a high-risk victim. Um, she sounds as if she, she had a high-risk lifestyle, maybe not the best family situation for her brother to not exactly be worried about her for a few years. And obviously knowing the ending to the story and how she met her demise was not, you know, it was very violent and um, in line with, with a very high-risk lifestyle. The last time anyone put eyes on Jeanette living was in October of 1984. She had gone to South Philadelphia to visit her cousin. 
She was with her boyfriend at the time, and the cousin had mentioned seeing bruises on Jeanette, but said she never saw Jeanette being abused. The way her lifestyle in, in the reports is described, people would describe seeing her. She did have a boyfriend that she was involved with. He's now deceased. That also didn't sound like the best relationship from, from what we got out of people. Potential for abuse there. Nothing entirely confirmed, which sort of goes hand in hand with the high-risk lifestyle. A lot of the highest risk people, there's not going to be a lot of background because they don't report it. And they don't live a lifestyle where the typical alert systems go off, such as you see them in school, you see them at work. They're not going to those routines. They don't have a, a definitive routine like that. Maybe if they're homeless, um, you know, the, the people that would alert somebody to these things aren't, aren't really in place for that person. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the cases that we look at it over time Something goes wrong along the way, and it leads to an act of violence like this. Her cousin reported seeing Jeanette get onto a bus with her boyfriend. The boyfriend was actually interviewed in 2011. He uh, just mentioned that um, he saw Jeanette that summer and then that he was going to go to Florida. And then he uh, he died in 2016. You know, you kind of have to consider everything. And so the fact that uh, the cousin had, had seen him and her together and were her with some bruising, you know, and, and being aware of their, their um, kind of uh, transient lifestyle at the time, you have to look and say like, okay, is this, is this something where her boyfriend would have done it? But just the analysis of the crime scene, again, we're big on keeping an open mind. So we would not exclude him entirely because he did have the relationship and all that. But the violent nature, it would be an overkill for, for the boyfriend to go to the level that this went to. It wouldn't, it doesn't seem consistent with, you know, whatever, whatever may have occurred, like if, if a crime of passion, this is an overkill for, uh, beyond an overkill. Sometimes crime of passion is an overkill, but this is, um, this is way more violent. Years had gone by. Jeanette's mother died not knowing what happened to her daughter. Joanne moved to Northeast Philadelphia. Jeanette, I care about you. I've always cared about you. Please come back if this is you. And Joanne also died, knowing Jeanette had died, but not knowing what happened to her. Jeanette Rose Tamby was buried in Seaside Cemetery in 1996. It's a place where the unnamed went. And now between three detectives finding out what happened to Jeanette, getting some answers is all they can hope for. I just think they, it speaks to society at large that, that we're a society that doesn't forget these things. We're, we're continuing to work on them. They don't, they don't just get completely left to the side and never looked at again. She's not missing anymore. I mean, it's, you know, unfortunately she's deceased. It, you know what it did too? It, it, this is going to sound strange, but the system worked. The CODA system worked. That's the that was the first and only time in a case like this that it's worked for me. And I I was pretty I was pretty excited about it. You know, it was like wow, all, all this running around, like knocking on doors, trying to find where this guy lives, getting this guy, you know, and we finally you know got the results that we needed to uh, effectively close out a case. So we closed out a missing persons case, and not having jurisdiction on the homicide, it wasn't. But at least it gave New Jersey, it named their, it identified their Jane Doe. 
Both Detective Bonner and Detective Sergeant Etree continue to work the case from different angles. There have been a, uh, some people of interest over the years, and we don't exclude uh, the possibility of an acquaintance or a, a former dating relationship as a possibility in this. But we have an open mind to to all possibilities. And we've also explored similar uh, modus operandi for people that have done similar crimes over the years. We explore those things. However, you know, we haven't we haven't come across anything where uh, we could specifically hone in on one person at this point. One of the things that we think could be helpful if, if somebody did know her and had seen her with people connected to New Jersey or um you know, trying to, trying to, let's say, work or find some connection to get by that would have led her to New Jersey. If somebody knew that info, information and, and could share who she was with, that's the type of critical information that could be really helpful for us. If you may have known Jeanette, especially in the mid-80s, they want to hear from you. You can email coldcase at njsp.org. We go back and research these cases and see what evidence existed then, make sure it still exists now. We locate it, we do a thorough review of our cases. You know, once we find out that information, we, we meet with our forensic scientists and deter, you know, we figure out the best practice from there. What's new now that wasn't available then that might help with this? And in, in Jeanette's case in 2011, you know, the important, most important piece at that time was identifying her. Now that she was identified, we've seen that it still remained a very difficult case because she had a transient lifestyle and it wasn't easy to track her down. There weren't a lot of people that were aware of her routine and we could hone in on a specific incident where everything was very normal for 20 years of her life. And then this day occurred and there's a, there's a significant event that occurred that obviously is out of the ordinary and you got to hone in on that. With her, we didn't have that. So even though we identified her, the, the details of the case still remain difficult. Figuring out why, why is she in this section of Atlanta County in a very rural area? How did she get there? So if the public can help with that and, and, and provide us some information, if anybody knew her in the 1984 to 1986 timeframe and um, could explain certain acquaintances maybe we didn't know about, maybe she took on a new job, something along those lines, and she may have mentioned it to somebody. A piece of information like that could be really helpful and any connection in New Jersey that we have not been made aware of yet. Those pieces of information, you know, we can we can vet with the details we know of our investigation and go from there. Anything you might know about the disappearance and murder of Jeanette Tamby, please send an email to coldcase at njsp.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of What Happened To from Gone Cold, Philadelphia's Unsolved Murders. From Tom and I and from all of us at KYW News Radio Original Podcast, we hope you're able to spend the holidays with the people you love. Here's to a better year and more episodes in 2021. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Over here. 
plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.